Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network where we don't do the thinking for you. Today, there is no single topic. Today, we are finally, finally doing a patron Q&A. So patrons of a certain tier get to submit questions to me to be answered by me. And now it turns out most patrons at this higher tier are just more interested in supporting the show than they are squeezing perks out of me. And so uh, a lot of people have not even sent in questions, even though I asked. What this means is that those of you high-paying patrons who have not yet submitted questions, I'm going to be coming for more. And also those of you, you know, listening to this thinking, I would like some questions answered by Eric on the show. Well, you know what to do. Go to patreon.com slash reconsider. And we can do another listener Q&A in the next six months if we get enough of you all submitting questions. So I have gone around and squeezed questions from folks. I have negotiated a few questions, not quite making the cut because they're a bit silly and a little bit too just Eric's opinion, which you know, just Eric's opinion isn't the interesting part of the show. You can always get an opinion from all sorts of people on what good policy is. So I'm also going to make sure that I answer a lot of the questions, a lot of questions in a reconsider e way, where I try to kind of give as much data as possible and kind of my own experience, but not necessarily, you know, or at least as much as I can tell you what to think. Um, some of these questions are also personal, and I'm actually just going to go ahead and answer these questions in the order that they came in. I've done some research for some of them. I have done less for others, uh, but we'll see how it goes. So buckle in. I don't even know how long this bad boy is going to go, but we're going to find out. So first, Oleg asks, how did I get interested in the subject of political polarization? So thanks for asking, Oleg. I've got this like cool story that I like to tell, which is actually like pretty true. It's actually quite true. It's just curated, but I'll give you the less curated version here. The, the, the place I like to tell the story is in like conferences or Q and A's and such. And so the less curated version is, so I grew up with a pretty darn conservative father and a like moderate, moderate mother who, if she's listening to this, is going to say, no, 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 don't tell people I'm moderate. She is, uh, as it turns out, revealed herself as being less moderate and was uh, and, and is much more liberal now. I wouldn't say progressive. She complains about progressive, uh, at least kind of cultural grandstanding a lot, but she's quite liberal and especially socially liberal. Uh, and so, and I think she, she was being moderate just to get along with everyone because my grandparents were very conservative, kind of arch conservative. My father was quite conservative and kind of teed off about it. And I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, so it's a pretty red part of the country. So I was interested in politics. I think, you know, what initially got me interested? It's a good question. I think a big part of it was I was alone and bored a lot because I grew up in very rural Pennsylvania. And like, this was before, you know, we didn't get a computer till like 1996 or something. And it certainly wasn't internet connected right away. So there's only so much to do. You know, there's, there's only so many woods to go out and walk around in over and over again. So I read a lot. And so I read the newspaper. I read books. I read many a book. And, you know, the events of the world interested me. And so I got into politics, but I definitely had a conservative outlook because that's how it's raised, right? Just like, you know, hey, look, if someone is of a certain religion, what is the probability that their parents are of the same religion? It's like astoundingly high, right? And so similar things go with politics, although usually a little bit less so because it's at least not ostensibly dogmatic, right? It's ostensibly something you thought about. So I grew up conservative and I ended up going to school in New Jersey uh, for high school with a lot of wealthy 
uh, with a lot of wealthy people. I was on a scholarship, and so I was like surrounded by this like brand new class of people, um, even whose conservatism, like some of them were conservative, some of them were liberal, and there were a bunch of kids, so like they didn't know anything more than I did, but they definitely felt differently about things, and even the conservatives were of a different ilk or a different brand, and. So I had a lot of my ideas that I took for granted challenged and gotten a lot of kind of arguments with people. I was also very socially awkward, so I didn't make a lot of friends readily. And then I went to Boston to go to MIT and was definitely exposed to uh, some very, very, very different politics. And But also, you know, again, mostly liberal, but also like libertarian and also like a different form of conservative. And I mean, hung out with like anarchists and communists and people who really nine Rand and just all over the place. And part of what was cool in particular at MIT was politics was very much like a backseat thing. Um, it was not a school dominated by, you know, sort of what you see on the headlines of like, you know, liberal students shouting down anyone who, you know, doesn't agree with them and trying to get professors in trouble for uh, saying the wrong thing. It was a place where people were there just, you know, they wanted to learn how to be great engineers and hang out with nerds and learn stuff. And the political science department was like very kind of like hard-nosed, brass tacks, policy wonky. And so what was interesting is you got to know people like before you got to know their politics. People didn't wear their politics on their sleeve most of the time. And the people who did of whatever ilk were like not particularly popular because it was killing the vibe, right? Um, killing the chill. And so wearing your politics on your sleeve was like not particularly socially rewarded at MIT. So now, of course, what some people consider politics and other people consider, you know, not politics, something much more fundamental is differs. But at least at the time, what it meant was before you got to know someone's politics, you got to know them as a person. What did this mean? For me, it meant that, you know, I grew up in a very, very like traditionally Protestant conservative part of the country. And I loved the people I grew up with because they were my freaking family. And then I went to, you know, New Jersey and then MIT and like fell in love with a whole bunch of friends there who turns out thought very differently. And I was like, wait a minute, you're all good people, but you also like all think that each other are terrible people. Like even back then, it, there was this idea of, you know, of the other side being a... Like, just a monstrous caricature. And, you know, we talk about, you know, on the show, all sorts of ways in which, like, yeah, 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 you can go find the monstrous caricatures, right? They exist. Like, those individual people exist. And, like, there's even more than one of them. But most people, most of the time, are not these monstrous caricatures. Like, you get to know them, and they're lovely people. And so I knew something was up, because not only did I like people who thought very different political things, but I also liked, I understood that those people really, really disliked people that they'd never met before. You know, and all these people were were painting very broad brushstrokes about people that I liked based on what they believed. And so that's kind of where it all got started. And the place it really kicked off after that was even before meeting Xander. It was, you know, my CEO at Stroud, Nat Green, who co-wrote Wedge with me. He and I would talk politics because Nat is a, uh, if he is, Nat, if you're listening, hello. Uh, if he is one thing, who boy, he is a contrarian, right? So, and it's a big part of like what made Stroud great was this contrarian thinking where we'd like go into a, you know, go into a factory, which is where I do consulting. And we would just, you know, we would 100% absolutely not believe anything anyone said until we got direct evidence for it. And that was a big part of what made us so good. We just didn't take anyone's word for granted. We trusted their intent, of course, but, you know, we believed that people had these myths about reality that they all agreed on that were often false. And turns out when you get past the myths, you can solve a lot of problems. And so it was something that Nat, as the CEO, was a specialist in. And he is very contrarian. And so he and I actually just got on really well. And it was after I left Stroud that we decided to write Wedge together. And that was the beginning of the end. I ended up getting introduced to Xander through a Stroud guy named Tom. So Tom worked with me at Stroud, was a friend of Xander's. Xander had been involved in some various political stuff earlier. And Tom literally just said to both of us, like, you two should do a podcast. And then we started a podcast. So that's how that began. So thanks for the opportunity to share that. Oleg, Oleg also asks... Do you consider the 20th century label American century correct, right? So the 20th century is often called the American century, and do I consider it correct? Which is one of those things that's like purely an opinion thing, of course, which doesn't mean I shouldn't opine about it, but how would we... How would we assess this? Well, unlike a political position, it is... Actually, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and have an opinion on this because like, unlike a political position, it's not like, is this good or bad or right or wrong? It's just like, would I use that label in describing something? And I am torn on it in part because I think it implies that the American century is over. So obviously, I do think of the 20th century as the American century. It, like, if we think of... And also, like, it didn't begin in 1900. I think the American century began before that. Um, it began, like, late Industrial Revolution as the United States started to become a major powerhouse sort of won the West, as it were, and like consolidated, you know, consolidated the continent. 
it just established itself as uh, so powerful that like by the time Teddy Roosevelt came around, like that was sort of like when everyone already, you know, realized it, but what was happening before that with like rail and, you know, and, and like there's a reason that it was so early in the 20th century that the United States invented flight. I think the United States was already sort of at the top of his game before the 20th century started. I don't think it's over yet. Do I think that the American era will end? Yes. Right. It's just kind of, it's sort of inevitable in part because China and India are just so big. And there's no reason to think that, you know, you wouldn't have this kind of like asymptotic closing of like GDP per capita between India and the United States. Like at some point, you know, these poorer nations just aren't going to be poor anymore. And so you'll have lots and lots and lots of people with like access to education and travel and the internet and all sorts of technologies that we can't even imagine now. And it's going to be cool. And then the same, I mean, it turns out the same with large parts of Africa. Like Nigeria is huge. It's not as big as the United States. But what it's going to mean is like, is at some point, you know, as the developing world comes out of poverty, you're going to have a very much a post-American world. I think that's just inevitable. But it is certainly the case that we are sort of still in the American era. And I think a lot of people thought like with Iraq or something, or even Trump, oh, there's the end of the American era. And like people keep kind of like, you know, calling the end of it long before it's due. I mean, it's worth noting, people called the end of the American era during the Vietnam War and right after and stagflation. It's like, well, there it goes, right? And I think like structurally and economically, like the United States has such an edge in a lot of key technologies. And of course, like China is catching up. So like that will be the crossover point. But the edge that the United States has in economy and technology and in, you know, military strength is makes it like makes it the case that one, everyone else is kind of like consuming, you know, again, less and less China, but most of the world is like consuming American media, consuming American technology, consuming American products. And the United States is going to lead the way in robotics, in space, in biotechnology, and the other like forward-thinking technologies, much in the same way that it did the internet and has built the great juggernauts of the current age. So I think like in all the ways that are interesting, like culturally, right? Like where does the most media come from? It is the United States. Technologically, what's dominant? It's the United States. Economically, it's the United States. Politically, militarily, it's still the United States. You know, even a, a sign that the American era is not over is the fact that even after Trump, American allies were, were like, okay, whew, thank goodness that's over. Like, yes, we're cranky, but we'll keep playing ball with you. Why? Because we have to. Why? Because it's the American age. And so I do think we're in the middle, middle of the American age. So thank you, Oleg. Colin Palin has a couple questions. So he asked first, I know Reconsider is more United States focused, but I was interested if you paid much attention to UK politics, less than I should, and the uncomfortable parallels between the United States now and where the UK appears to be headed. So um, I pay a little bit less attention to UK politics, but I have a soft spot for the United Kingdom in part because I'm such a big fan of uh, the UK during the Blitz and its holdout, like the UK holding out and not capitulating to the Germans, unlike some other countries who shall go on name for now or who like, you know, or some countries who stayed neutral and said like, sure, you can just like walk right through or walk around. Who cares? The UK stayed in the war and put up with the Blitz and like the people of Great Britain in particular had like chose to persist because it was the right thing to do and i think for that like we the we the the people of the world who do not currently live under like a terrible fascist regime owe the uk a great debt because i have like war gamed out what it would mean had the uk not done that and it would be ugly so i've always had a soft spot for the uk and i i followed the uk somewhat i also like dated someone who whose family lived in the british isles for some years so i have been following it and of course you know, like what concerns me quite a deal is like, you know, do I think Brexit was a good idea? I, you know, my opinion on that is not so much important as much as like kind of the vitriol and polarization that's like emerged in the United Kingdom around Brexit and other stuff like that is starting to get a little bit uglier. And, you know, the Scottish referendum, which the first time didn't happen, but the second time very much could, where Scotland tries to become more like Ireland and join the EU and just have a border with the UK. I think that's actually like not a good thing in the long term for like the world, but the Scottish are in a bit of a tough position. So I don't want to tell the Scottish what to do, but it's a, uh, because again, they're in a tough spot, but like it would be tragic if like the chain of events led to Scotland and England, Wales separating. And so, you know, why do I think that there's kind of like increased kind of like vitriol in the UK, which there definitely is. Look, I hate to say it, but like a big part of it is just, it's some of the same forces that are going on in the United States you do have more than two parties, but like not really, or at least not in a way that keeps labor or the conservatives, you know, the Tories from being kind of the dominant force. And I think you also, you also have some of the same 
issues where, hate to say it, Russia is interfering and Russia happens to be extraordinarily good at misinformation and BS and sowing division through exploiting social media technology wherever they kind of put their mind to it. And they put their mind to it in the United Kingdom. And so, no, I don't love where the UK is headed, much in the same way I don't love where the United States has been. And, you know, do I think Boris Johnson is a clear parallel to Donald Trump? Like, no, they're different men. Do I think, like, Boris Johnson is a product of, like, is the kind of person who would have been elected prime minister of the United Kingdom in the 90s? Like, probably not. Much in the same way, like, Donald Trump would have never stood a chance in the United States in the 90s because it was an age of, like, decency and reasonableness, at least comparatively. So Colin also asks, probably best for the show, but I'm more curious on this one. I decided to answer it on the show for you, Colin. Um, I'm much more of an audiobook guy, and I'm sorry to see no sign of Wedge on Audible. Are there any plans, um, or have I considered getting an audiobook version up? Yeah, I keep telling myself I'm going to do it at some point. Like, Colin, I sympathize deeply with you. I, too, am an audiobook guy. I, too, much, much prefer audiobooks to sitting and reading because I can listen to them and learn things while I'm doing laundry, while I'm doing dishes, while I'm on the subway, which, yes, one can read on the subway unless one is standing and trying to move around, you know, walking around between cars and such or trains and such like that so i do want to create an audiobook at some point i even had the thought i was like oh i'll just get it outsourced it's like wait a minute i literally do a podcast i should just get on the mic and stop being lazy about it so what's my answer for you are there any plans no have i considered it yes do i want to totally when's it gonna happen no idea and uh but maybe i'll just you know how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time maybe i'll just like do a chapter at a time and see what happens that's my best answer sorry colin so, patron Charles has a couple questions. So he says, quote, uh, going back 10 or 20 years, what were some of the, one of the like capital B, capital I big issues that aren't capital I issues anymore? And what happened to resolve them? So I did do a bunch of research for this one for you, Charles. And what's interesting is like, it's hard to define what's an issue and what's not an issue. So, you know, obviously it takes a lot of like kind of qualitative perspective on my part to define what is an issue, but I'll go through uh, four that I noticed when doing some of this research through like old copies of the New York Times, through Wikipedia, through some of my notes back in the 2000s when I was in college. I had this blog called Fog of War where I was blogging about all sorts of stuff. So yeah, I was also, I guess, writing, writing papers at MIT. So four interesting ones come to mind. So one, gay marriage, right? This is the obvious one. In 2006... I remember Massachusetts was the only state in the union where gay marriage was legal and it was under threat, that legalization was under threat by a referendum that, long story short, needed to, in order for it to be a ballot referendum, the ballot referendum wanted to change the constitution to define marriages between a man and a woman. Remember that? Oh, that was so funny. And for it to become a ballot referendum, it needed a quarter of the legislature to vote in favor of it being a referendum. And so there's this like big debate going on in the... Massachusetts General Court and the general, you know, I was part of a demonstration saying no referendum because it's a civil rights thing and ended up not passing, which meant that gay marriage was there to stay. So that was 2006. Think about that. That was 15 years ago. And uh, it was a mere nine years after that, that gay marriage was basically settled by a Supreme Court case. Now, you might say, wait, Supreme Court case? Eric, hold on, we know this story. Roe v. Wade was settled by a Supreme Court case, but is far from settled. Ah, yes, that's because Roe v. Wade is still an issue. Abortion is still an issue. We've talked about this in Wedge and a few other things. Why is gay marriage not an issue anymore? A big part of it is that it, I think it's one of those things that it's like hard to get people fired up about ending, like a big part of people fired up about ending. But I also think like a big part of it was the charm offensive by the LGBTQ community. Basically, pride parades and other stuff like that. That's like, hey, I'm gay and I'm just a normal person, right? Like, I'm just trying to live my life. And that charm offensive, I think, was extremely powerful. And I think the transgender community is starting to do the same thing. And I think transgender stuff is going to be harder to fix. I'll talk about why in a sec. But definitely the charm offensive, like, got people to sit there and go like, wait, why do I need a law to stop these people from doing this thing? It's not really my problem. And like, they seem reasonable as opposed to like, you know, this is a slippery slope towards bestiality becoming legalized, right? Which is what some people for some strange reason said. And I think that charm offensive was a big part of it. Turns out people are just like, you know, I mean, you've, you've heard people say it like, oh yes, I was against gay marriage. And then I found out like my niece is gay. 
and now I'm for it, right? And you're sort of like, well, I mean, you could have just figured it out on your own. It's like, yeah, but like, that's what people need. People need, you know, look, as we know from everything we've talked about, like, if you don't like model someone as human, you don't really care about them and they're just an abstraction to you. Uh, and then if you model them as human, all of a sudden, like you can start sympathizing with them and putting them in your shoes. is just a psychological thing. We've got a limited number of humans we can model in our minds. It's called like the monkey rule. It's like 150. And to just say like, well, you're a bad person if you don't. It's like, well, you don't either. So that's what it took and it worked. Now, why is transgender stuff going to be more difficult? It's because with gay marriage, you can just like leave well alone and you actually can't quite just leave well alone with transgender stuff like you do have to have some like rules and etiquette around bathrooms and like how does that work and like i have to be in those bathrooms or it's like look if i'm like not into gay marriage like i don't have to go to the wedding i don't have you know like they're just walking around i don't have to, you know they're not in my space whereas like the bathroom felt like the space for like you know people who seem like men to me and like someone who doesn't seem like a man to me being in there like i've been told in my life to feel weird about that like they shouldn't be here it's a private place you know especially vice versa so like if I'm a woman and someone who seems like a man is in there but says they're a woman, right? So like you do need people to adjust their own lives and adjust their and like, you know, change what they do in order to accommodate. Similarly with like, you know, pronouns, especially once you get towards like, you know, towards pronouns that like people haven't grown up hearing, right? So like, okay, I can get, you know, you've gone from he to she, that's fine. You're sure. And I've like never heard that word before. And so like, now you're saying I have to call you that. So it's a, it's a much harder thing to do. So I think one of the reasons like gay marriage fizzled out is because all that was asked of people was to like, just shut up and leave well enough alone. And voila, right? And it's one of those things where the charm offensive meant that people were able to sympathize with each other or with gay people. Similarly, marijuana is like largely becoming a non-issue. It's like the end, at the end of the issue cycle where, man, I remember I ended up watching, um, it was to see Miley Ray Cyrus, uh, or yeah, Miley Cyrus, yeah, whatever. See her on SNL. I watched SNL from 2011. And like, there were a number of references to marijuana being illegal. And everyone was just like, yeah, marijuana is illegal. Like, of course we all smoke it, you know, week, week. But, you know, of course, if we get caught, we could get arrested and go to jail. And people do go to jail. And like, it's kind of crazy in retrospect, like throwing people in jail for smoking pot. But it's one of those things that like has kind of gone through also these like rapidly going through the issue cycle and like has less opposition in part because, you know, the opposition is like, well, we don't want our kids to do drugs, but it's not like an offense to God or something. And then when what happens is like, as you know, more people who are like somewhat recreationally smoke pot and they're perfectly functional adults, you kind of go, oh, yeah, like maybe this isn't something that's going to like kill my kid if they take it. So I'm fine with it being legalized. Right. And like, that's all it takes. Okay. What other issues don't seem to be issues anymore? Uh, one of them is debt, which uh, I'm kind of grumpy about, but like government debt, like just like nobody seems to care anymore. And you know, the Republicans kind of make some like weak hand wavy motions about government debt, but like they don't really get into it anymore. And the weak hand wave emotions are only when, like, the Democrats are in charge, right? They don't actually do anything about debt when the Republicans are in charge, um, or at least they haven't for the past few presidencies. And so it just seems to be something where, like, we have accepted that, like, there was this idea of, like, keeping debt down to, like, a reasonable percentage of GDP, like, I don't know, 60 to 80%. And now it is, like, double that, you know, like, over 120. Everyone's like, yeah, it's fine. Like, we'll just keep going. We'll figure it out. And maybe debt will be an issue again when interest rates start climbing because uh, I don't necessarily believe the voodoo economics. Uh, but I think like the debt hawks may have died with the Iraq war and then in particular Trump. Um, and why did the debt hawks die? I don't know, in part because I think they realized like as the United States has gotten more and more populist, people just wonder like, what can I get out of this, right? And like they talk openly about it. People just go like, you know, like it's not like a shameful thing to go like, well, what can I extract from this, right? Like from government revenue. And one thing you can extract is paying less government revenue, right? That's how I can get my cut. Or you can say like, well, I want free stuff from the government. That's how I can get my cut. And yeah, people are just a little more blatant about it. So I think as we've gotten more populist, like there's just not room for dead hawks. Uh, another issue that was back like 10 to 20 years ago, is the EU going to really become a thing? Like, is it going to last? I remember like, you know, big referendums in the mid 2000s for the European Union and like whether it was going to stick together. Turns out with the exception of a few crises of, you know, individual countries, like, yes, the EU has become an entrenched thing and it's going to stick around. And Euroscepticism is a thing, but like the question of whether the EU will become a powerful entity passed by. Why? 
Good question. It's probably one of those things where, you know, where I think ultimately European nationalism, well, in Europe, like patriotism and nationalism are a little more tied together. In the United States, it's much easier to like be a patriot without necessarily being a nationalist, in part because like the United States story, like the United States concept of a nation is much more tied up in its story than its ethnic identity or something like that, right? To be French is to be like ethnically French. To be American is to like believe in this story about freedom and such, right? Which like, I know a lot of people are like, oh, freedom, ha, 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 ha. But like, but it is the American story and it is what makes it the United States American, like the United States a thing. There's no like, there's no like real ethnic group or religious anything as much as some people would like to say there is that defines the United States. The United States would still be what it is if it spoke Spanish and, I don't know, became Buddhist. And so I think in Europe in particular, like nationalism or patriotism like waned in part because like nationalism had to wane in the wake of the 20th century. And that waning, um, and the other thing is like the United States and the Soviet Union like got people used to like thinking of themselves as like blocks or groups during the Cold War. And so I think this idea of, oh, we have to like hold on to all of our sovereignty got a little bit weaker. And I think that's the part that's changed. Like there are going to be some crises for possibly places like Poland or like Hungary is like Hungary, it turns out is like still very nationalistic. Um, the UK cares a lot about its sovereignty and like cares a lot about its own story as sort of like the birthplace of liberalism as we know it today. And so like, it's not quite over, but like it was a big question as to like whether you'd be a thing and it is a thing. And then I think the last thing that's become a non a non issue is government surveillance. Like there was a period, it was actually like it actually peaked during the Obama administration, just for whatever reason, where people freaked out about government surveillance, right? Edward Snowden, all that stuff, and nobody cares anymore. I mean, a few diehards care anymore, but there's just been like a lack of noise and a lack of Republican or Democratic debate over government surveillance. And I think a big part of it is like presidents of both parties find it like a convenient tool to do the things that they feel are important, such as like, you know, probably they feel like they need it to minimize the likelihood of terrorist incidents and who knows how many they feel they have prevented, you know, using essentially spying on citizens. They probably also, uh, you know, it's probably, it's probably somewhat helpful to, for like trying to keep the peace with domestic uprising and stuff like that. And even if it's not terrorism. So it seems just like, it's one of those things that just seems like such a useful tool to either president or either kind of president. It's a little like, look, you know, Obama was like, oh, I'm totally going to close Guantanamo Bay. And then like, as soon as he became president, he just never, like, never said anything about it. And he probably looked like, probably what happened was like some national security person like showed up and was like, here's everyone in Guantanamo Bay. Like, do you want to release them? And he's like, oh God, no. Right. Not to say like, I support Guantanamo Bay being open, but like, it's definitely one of those things that like, as soon as you're in power, your perspective changes a lot. And so I think that like that stuff, you know, that because we have a system where like the parties go back and forth, like both parties are fine with having that kind of power, like in particular right now, because it's like, as far as we can tell, not being used politically um, as much as Trump probably like seems to have tried to use the Justice Department and spying on all sorts of stuff on his political enemies. It wasn't to any great effect. And and by the way, it is it, like I say that casually, like it is awful that he tried to do that. I mean, the, the guy is a you know, the guy, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for the United States. He was so incompetent, but it seems to like have not become a practice yet. And so I think both sides are fine with it. So that was a very long way of answering Charles's question. What are some issues that were big then that are big nothing burgers now? So thanks for asking Charles. All right. From patron Mark Daniels. Thank you for your questions. He asks, at what point will labor shortages and inflation mess up our post-COVID recovery? And, you know, I... Ugh. I'm of like multiple minds on this. So uh, actually, I'll just share my multiple minds so you can be as confused as I am, because my whole thing is not to tell you what to think. You know, look, on the one hand, I have since probably 2009 or 10 been worried about low interest rates leading to problems. And one of those and people often talk about low interest rates leading to problems of inflation, but more importantly, they lead to problems of bubbles. And so a lot of like kind of conventional economics uh, seems to not really be in effect where, you know, for a long time, even before COVID, you know, you had like not just uncharacteristically, but like historically high corporate debt, personal debt, government debt, um, historically low interest rates, because which are related, of course. And, you know, and, and that debt leading to like a debt rather than savings driven economy leading to, you know, very high prices in certain sectors, including the stock market as a whole. And I often had a lot of, I believed just for the longest time that like the stock market was due for a correction for seven or eight years now, I've been personally investing quite conservatively. 
And, you know, it hasn't happened yet. And so since COVID, you know, government debt, personal debt, corporate debt has all gone up, especially government debt. But that government debt at some point means higher interest rates. And, you know, my thought is at some point, higher interest rates come to bite you. And so like, that's the thing I'm actually worried about. It's like interest rates going up. Once interest rates go up, the government can't just spend money to goose the economy anymore. And you've, if you've heard the term goose the economy, it's because we've had Jake Meyer around and we've talked about goosing the economy repeatedly. And, you know, and then after that, you have a, you know, those interest rates go up. You can't goose the economy anymore because you start getting into like a interest spiral where you have to like borrow money to pay the interest. And that's no good then you become Greece. So the government at some point has to at least presumably get its act together if it been, can become functional as opposed to just populist, which it is now. And, you know, and, and then you're doomed. And then when the government can't keep goosing the economy, the chickens are going to come home to roost, right? So like one way of looking at it is that the government has just like kept the economy propped up for way too long. And now post-COVID, where we have these like seeming labor shortages and inflation. And what's interesting is like one way of looking at that is well, you know, low interest rates do eventually lead to inflation because you just have so much money circulating in the economy, like things start to cost more, right? Like you have more money circulating in the economy without more stuff being made, so things cost more. But it's been happening for a long time and we haven't had major inflation, which a lot of people thought there'd be inflation, there wasn't. Everyone's very confused, including me. And But what's interesting is if you have people not working when there's demand for jobs, then the companies making stuff can't produce enough stuff to meet demand and then prices would go up, right? It's essentially like the market solving, or it could be, it's possible what's going on is the market solving, and then prices of stuff goes up, or go up, so there's more, there's like even more of a pull, a demand to make more stuff, and so, and companies can like get higher profits for that stuff, so they're more willing to pay people more money to come make the stuff, and so, you know, that could be what's going on, and that as labor prices go up, you're going to have more people employed, right? You're going to solve the labor shortage problem. And I, look, I'll be the first to say, like, I believe that when you pay people not to work, they're more likely to work uh, or more likely to not work. And, you know, I've heard some people say about, you know, the unemployment bonus or whatever uh, being removed, like, well, it's not going to put people back to work. It's like, okay, but if it doesn't put people back to work, then like, you still shouldn't pay them not to work if jobs are available and they're choosing not to work, right? If they're like, they're choosing not to work, then like, you shouldn't pay them not to work. It's you pay people not to work when they can't find work. So, you know, do I think that at some point, labor prices are, which seem to be rising, are going to fix the labor shortage problem? Yes. And then do I think that's going to fix the inflation problem? I don't know. You know, there are a lot of like, if we knew what caused inflation, there wouldn't be so much chatter around whether inflation is going to happen. So it's not even clear that inflation is here to stay or whether it's driven by labor shortages or anything else. So it could be fine. It could fix itself because you just, you know, you have people get employed again and they're being paid more and everything's actually great because aggregate demand goes up. I don't know, but that's what I got. Mark also asks about you know, the future of gerrymandering and how to fix it given money in politics, particularly in lo local legislatures. And honestly, man, there are like a lot of problems with gerrymandering. And one of them is that, to your point about local legislation, like, I don't know if it's so much money in politics, because it's not that, like, corporate interests want to keep gerrymandering. It's that the parties who have power, who, like, tend to win the local legislatures, want gerrymandering to say, because it allows them to translate a, you know, a solid majority in their state into a ridiculous majority in their delegation to Congress. So, and this is true of both parties, of course. And you certainly see you know, a state where, you know, 55% of the legislature is one party or another, their state legislature, their delegation is much more significantly that one party. So for example, like Massachusetts has basically never sent, like other than Scott Brown, briefly, like it's been a very long time since Massachusetts has sent any Republican delegation to DC, despite the fact that like at any given time between like 30 and 40% of Massachusetts or of Bay Staters are Republicans, right? And you see obnoxious forms of gerrymandering in places like North Carolina, Texas. And, you know, so how do you fix it? Well, what you have to do is like, I don't, again, I don't think money in politics is the issue. Like you have these states that are pretty red and they can gerrymander, so they do. And so could you pass a national law to stop it? I think not, because that would seem to violate the constitution. And in part because, like, the whole idea of the Constitution is that the states can kind of choose how to send their delegates. Because the idea wasn't to support one party or another. It was to send, you know, freaking, uh, you know, congresspeople to represent kind of the states. At the same time, you know, it could be, it could violate kind of like one person, one vote to be gerrymandered too much. Because, like, you're essentially doomed for political reasons for your vote to not matter as much. 
based on what you're gerrymandered into. And so could you potentially have a Supreme Court ruling rather than a law that... Uh, or could you have a law that like gets challenged and you win the Supreme Court? Maybe that's more likely at the national level to try to stop gerrymandering. Maybe, but you know what you'd need is like some sort of truce, and also uh, I mean that's the thing you need a truce. And like right now, part of the problem is the Republicans are so far ahead in the gerrymandering game compared to Democrats. Like it's why, despite the fact that Democrats for like a very long time keep winning the total number of votes for Congress people, like Democratic candidates. Like the total number of votes cast for Democratic candidates for Congress consistently and solidly is larger than Republicans. Then for Republican candidates, you still have Republicans, you know, win the majority of seats in the legislature. So I think like the Republicans are super not on board because it helps them more than the Democrats. Like they've done a better job of gerrymandering. And so you're never going to get that truce until the Democrats do a better job of gerrymandering, at which point maybe it gets ridiculous enough. It could also be the case that you might, again, be able to get a Supreme Court ruling that says this is a violation of people's kind of right to be represented. And if that's the case, then you could create some sort of national commission for making sure that that representation occurs. Mark also asks, is the filibuster constitutional? So I did some research. Turns out not everyone agrees one way or the other. It's not obviously constitutional. It's not obviously not constitutional. Now, there are arguments you know, kind of on, on either way, but like, why would it be unconstitutional? I think that's the interesting thing. If we look at Federalist 58, you know, the Federalist Papers are often used to um, try to understand the, you know, try to understand the Founding Fathers' intent when they wrote the Constitution. So Madison, um, James Madison, wrote Federalist 58. And one of the parts of 58 is about the issue of quorum and whether you should like require supermajorities or require kind of ridiculous quorums to be able to do any business in order to prevent the a sort of tyranny in the majority. And Madison says, quote, it has been said that more than a majority ought to have been required for a quorum. And in particular cases, if not all, more than a majority of a quorum for a decision. That some advantages might have resulted from such a precaution cannot be denied. It might have been an additional shield to some particular interests and another obstacle generally to hasty and partial measures. But these considerations are outweighed by the inconveniences in the opposite scale. In all cases where justice or the general good might require new laws to be passed or active measures to be pursued, the fundamental principle of free government would be reversed. It would be no longer the majority that would rule. The power would be transferred to the minority. Were the defensive privilege limited to particular cases, an interested minority might take advantage of it to screen themselves from equitable sacrifices to the general wheel or, in particular emergencies, to extort unreasonable indulgences. Lastly, it would facilitate and foster the baneful practice of secessions, a practice which has shown itself even in states where a majority only is required, a practice subversive of all principles of order and regular government, a practice which leads more directly to public convulsions and the ruin of popular governments than any other which has yet been displayed among us. Boy, those founding fathers were smart. So... The way I read it and the way that like some of these, uh, I've actually got some links in the show notes here for some papers written about this where people have a debate about it. But, you know, I read that as like, it's probably not like intended in the constitution for, you know, 41 senators to be able to block the other 59 from doing something that they want to do. Right. Just not the idea now. And, and the thing is the filibuster is not ancient. It's less than a hundred years old. And is it, you know, I guess I'm not being asked whether it's a good thing. So it does not seem obviously to be constitutional. It's worth noting that like the filibuster is just a rule in Senate. It's just a rule that to end debate, you need 60 people to agree to end debate. What it means is that someone, you know, is essentially that if you don't have 60 people saying we have to end debate, then you can filibuster when, and you do it the lazy version now, long story, but you actually don't have to stand up there on a podium and blab forever um, and like read the freaking telephone book. You can just get 41 people to say, like, no, let's keep debating and never actually get a vote, which is like, it's kind of a hack, right? And it does seem, at least by intent, to me, unconstitutional. Now, it would also be the case that James Madison literally talked about secession, which means a group of people leaving in order to prevent a vote from happening, which happened recently in Texas, right? Um, Texas Democrats didn't want a particular voting bill passed in Texas. And the, you know, the merits or dismerits of it aside... They are, you know, using a hack like the filibuster to prevent something from being done. So, you know, this is one of those things where people gripe about one and then use the other, right? I'm sure Republicans are griping about the Texas Democrats leaving and Democrats are griping about the Republicans using the filibuster. And 
James Madison probably would have looked down on both. Um, I would make the case that you could probably get a Supreme Court justice to fall either way on this, but I bet the Founding Fathers would not have loved the filibuster. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. All right. I'm going to go over a few questions by patron Clint Losey, who's our last one. He sent some very long questions that gave me the opportunity to do a bit of research, but I'm going to read the kind of give us the short versions of it. So the first one basically asks, is the debate over critical race theory, to quote Shakespeare, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing? Um, And I think the answer is like, probably not quite. Clint makes the point that Critical race theory itself is not taught in elementary or high schools, but uh, it's reserved to academics and legal scholars, uh, even, you know, rather than university students. And like, generally speaking, that is probably true. Critical race theory itself is probably not the thing we should be debating. Now, does it stand a reason then that like there is nothing, you know, that there is, uh, to quote Shakespeare back, much ado about nothing? Maybe not. Like, here's the issue. There have been certainly cases, like anecdotal cases, where, for example, like white students have been pressured by schools to like stand up and kind of confess their privilege in a kind of like weirdly like either religious or like communist Chinese 1984-esque kind of thing where you have to like stand up and give this like confession, right? Or you've had weird stuff like uh, white students in a class have to be silent and like only black students are allowed to talk, you know, at certain times about certain stuff. And so, you know, I'm not it's funny, I'm not able to like pull up all of the anecdotes, but you have these kind of like scattered anecdotes where you have like parents getting kind of cranky about how race is being treated in school. I think I agree with Clint that that doesn't necessarily mean that critical race theory is the problem. Clint points out that there are like legal prohibitions are being enacted that like end up banning discussing racism or sexism openly in schools, which also seems like not such a good thing either. So Clint asks, like, is the debate baseless? I don't know if it's baseless. There are certainly like parents who are grumpy. Like if you look at, like if you go to Fox News, you'll find plenty of anecdotes about like some wacky stuff that happens in schools because you have some like zealous progressive teachers who like decide they're just going to kind of like go on their own thing. You know, Clint asks, is it like the satanic panic in the 80s when people thought Satanism was nefariously spreading through the country schools? Probably not. And I think, so the final question was like, what's driving it to this level of hysteria? I think the thing to do is go to Fox News, who will like probably very loudly trumpet all of the anecdotes of like kind of wacky racial, like racial stuff that certain teachers do. And you will learn something from that. I realized the last example I had was, you know, you had this like Yale, for example, brought in a speaker that Yale sponsored. She ended up like being kind of disinvited because in her talk, she talked about how she fantasized about just like murdering white people. And like she was an academic person. It's interesting that she thought that that was appropriate somehow. But the talk itself was called the psychopathic problem of the white mind, right? So Yale invited a person to come speak at a at campus in a Yale-sponsored thing about how white people's minds are fundamentally psychopathic. Now, and then Yale was a 
you know, oops on Yale for like being surprised that she said some inappropriate stuff, right? Or, or some like, I mean, frankly, awful stuff, but like certainly academically inappropriate stuff there. But it's a, you know, you have these anecdotes that are like a sign that like something's not right in Denmark, which I know is also a bad, it's a, I butchered that Shakespeare quote, but um, like something's not right in Denmark. And so the pushback seems very clunky, but like the idea that like, nothing weird is going like that there are no universities or like teachers kind of like going loose cannon about race in a way that seems to be like anti-white is probably also not a justifiable position clint asks about corporate citizenship and whether it's dead probably if i had more time i mean one thing he brings up is that the co to average worker like wage ratio has gone up from about 20 to 30x in the 1960s to about 2 to 300x in the more modern times so that that ratio is multiplied tenfold and you know there's some he brings up some good anecdotes about like kodak being legendary for how well it treated its employees and how it made investments that benefited rochester new york more broadly and so, you know, it, it now seems that, for example, companies like Amazon are, for example, like not investing in local areas and not doing a great job of like taking care of their employees. I think it's hard for me to say without a little bit more research, like whether corporate investments in or, or sort of like corporate citizenship has declined, but like, let's just say it has Maybe it has, maybe it hasn't. Maybe like we just have, you know, we like remember only a few examples, but you also had like all sorts of corporations just like dumping sewage in the river, right? You know, and like, was it really the case that like Kodak paid people more than it needed to in order to like make profit? Like, was it actually going to a shareholder saying like, yeah, we could make more profit, but we won't. And here's why. I don't actually know that. But if I had to guess, it would be that the, if there is a difference, it would be that to some extent, one, you know, probably corporations like big corporations are going to do what their shareholders want right because if they don't like the ceo will get fired by the shareholders and a new ceo will be put in place and so is it the case that perhaps like shareholders used to be maybe more like retail shareholder like you know mom and pop shareholders and you know with 401ks and such and they owned a bigger portion of the pie and so they demanded uh, certain corporate citizenship and like maybe now it's all hedge funds or something. I actually don't know. I've not done the research on this, Clint. I'm kind of speculating live here. It's probably the case that uh, CEO average worker pay ratios are not so much driven by citizenship questions, but the fact that corporations do seem to like want to compete for the best CEOs because it does, there is at least a belief, I think whether it's justified or not doesn't matter. There's this belief that, you know, getting the best CEOs has a huge lever on your ability to make profit and corporations are quite large and quite, uh, and like corporate profits are higher than they've ever been as a percentage of their revenue. Um, like corporate profits are just awesome right now. And so I think that, you know, it does seem like those are somewhat tied together. It may be that ultimately the shareholders are demanding more aggressive growth from corporations or, or profit generating from corporations. Maybe it's because of, I don't know, ex and maybe that's because of like external pressures. It could be Silicon Valley. It could be China. It could be all sorts of stuff. I think to like really tell the story, you have to get deep in, but I certainly have my own bias to believe that like corporations are just gonna, are just like machines that act based on incentives as opposed to uh, like having a heart or not a heart, like being good or evil. That is a strong incentive, there's a strong bias of mine, but when I really believe, and like even in my own corporation, like I like to think I'm quite enlightened, but I can also tell a story about how in my own corporation, my enlightened behavior leads to better profits. And so ultimately I don't know. But there's a there's an elaboration of this, which I think is really interesting, which is, you know, the billionaire space race between Musk and Bezos and Sir Richard Branson. And, you know, I, I think it's a big nothing burger, but there's a, you know, Clint makes a point like it's not about whether billionaires should be allowed to spend their massive wealth on a private space program or any other fool thing. Indeed, billion, uh, Clint says, indeed, billions and billions have been wasted on yachts and art and whatever else that simply hasn't made the news. But Amazon does have a massive influence on many different aspects of our economy. Um, and you can watch in real time as Elon Musk sends shockwaves through cryptocurrency markets. You can include Facebook, Twitter, who influence society and government. So what's interesting is, like, is there a problem with individuals or businesses having undue influence on society? I happen to think that there is, like, very little that's new about this, Right. Like, if you look back on, like, oil companies, like, oil companies kind of squelched the, the electric car. You know, there's a documentary, Who Killed the Electric Car? Like, car companies, like, 
clearly lobbied government and like kept secrets to try to like prevent the catalytic converter from being a thing and prevent seatbelts from being a thing. And I think like this idea that like suddenly Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos have like more power than like corporations in the past or like very wealthy people in the past, I think it's just like, I don't see any reason in particular to believe it. Like if the best example we have, not to give you too hard a time, Clint, but like if the best example we have is that like Elon Musk tweets like make like ultra speculative fake internet money go up and down, then that says more about crypto markets than it does about Elon Musk's power, right? Like Elon Musk cannot tweet and like make the dollar go up or down. He cannot tweet him, do any, he cannot influence anything but crypto because like so much of crypto is a meme and uh, especially Dogecoin is a big meme. And so people who meme invest, like these are like speculators speculating on whether future speculators will speculate in the same way that they speculate because like it's really not clear what the heck Dogecoin even does. And so I don't think that's a real, I don't think Elon Musk being able to change Bitcoin and um, Dogecoin is a sign that he has any serious power more than just like some rando influencer. It's just that people like retail investors got excited about crypto despite every financial advisor saying you shouldn't get excited about crypto. But then because so many of them got excited about crypto, crypto prices went up and they said, see, these financial advisors are just trying to keep us down, man. Right. But I think the whole crypto thing is like a mass hysteria. Now, me thinking it's mass hysteria is not going to influence the market the same way that Elon Musk would. But like Elon Musk is a big influencer for people who like to invest in crypto. And that happens to make the news. Much like I'm sure Cardi B is a big influencer for people who like certain brands of makeup, but it doesn't make the news. And Cardi B could probably make a makeup brand rise or fall with a tweet. But who cares? And so like, yes, the internet age does mean like celebrities have influence. I think Elon Musk being rich has very little to do with whether he can influence the crypto market other than the fact that, well, it's not even about him being rich. Like he said Tesla would accept Bitcoin and then that it wouldn't accept Bitcoin. But I bet if Ford said that it would accept Bitcoin and then not accept Bitcoin, like it would also have a big effect. It's just that Elon happens to be like, Elon happens to be personally having Tesla mess around with accepting Bitcoin. It may be the thing that is different now. Like if it feels like something is different now, it is probably the case that you have very, very, very large corporations where one person in them is very powerful because they're not only the CEO, but they're also the founder and largest shareholder. And like that has probably not been super true for long about a lot of companies. I mean, it's true about Microsoft, for example. And it may just be that like Bill Gates has a smaller ego than some of these other guys. I don't know. But it was also the case that like, you know, Amazon and Tesla and SpaceX are like fairly new. And so I actually don't see any reason to think that like if we think about all the ways in which big companies such as oil companies and car companies and train companies and banks and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, have like influenced government through lobbying just in like less memetic ways. Like I don't think anything's changed. It's just like the internet means there's more memes about it. Who cares? And maybe it's more concentrated in someone's personality because that person controls more of a business. But like Elon Musk, but here's the other thing, like, the last point is, I think Elon Musk's personal wealth and Jeff Bezos's personal wealth are very unrelated to this, is my belief. Like, they're related only in the sense that they're big shareholders of these companies and the companies are very big. But it's not like the fact that they have a lot of paper money. They're not like throwing around that paper money in any meaningful way. Why are they taking rides on rocket ships? Well, it's because they're in charge of companies that happen to be building rocket ships, right? They're not like personally horking up tons of money. There's like plenty of billionaires out there that could hork up tons of money to ride on their rocket ships. It's not their richness. It's, it's not their wealth. It's the fact that they lead rocket ship companies. And, you know, of course, a billionaire riding on a rocket ship looks very wasteful. In some ways it is. But like testing rockets and like putting people in them is like, it's not like they took their personal money and they're like, oh, I'll take my personal money and like dump it into a giant rocket ship company that will like never turn into, that will like never produce wealth or that will like never generate profit. The, the investors in all these rocket ship companies think that there are going to be future buyers of this or future like consumers of rockets. I mean, certainly SpaceX is doing a great job with its rockets of like building highly viable commercialized rocket technology, right? That is like way cheaper and better than anything that's ever built before. And Boeing and Lockheed Martin have spent tons, tons, tons more money on building rockets, like orders of magnitude more money on building rockets that don't work nearly as well. And it's mostly the government's money too, right? And like, we're not scandalized by that. Like Elon's only spending like, you know, 
investor money. He's not spending government money in the way that Lockheed has like blown hundreds of billions of government money on the STS. So like, so as you can see, I'm like a bit of a defender of Elon here. But like, the point is like Elon taking a trip on a rocket is irrelevant. The point is that like the fact that crypto is so ridiculous that someone can tweet about like the person, the like powerful CEO who happens to be interested in tweeting about crypto can influence crypto with a tweet, like has nothing to do with Elon and everything to do with crypto. And the fact that like Lockheed Martin's CEO is like just this nameless doofus who is like, you know, mismanaged Lockheed's STS program and been, and it spent like hundreds of billions of dollars of taxpayer money for a product that doesn't work nearly as well as the privately funded one, right? Like if there's going to be a scandal about rockets, like that should be it because that's actually your money and my money, not some random investor's money. Who cares what these random investors do with their money? So if this is a bigger thing about like, oh, should the rich pay more taxes? Like, of course the rich should pay their taxes. Done. I don't think anyone thinks that Elon and Jeff Bezos should pay no taxes. So to that point, Clint asks about, oh gosh, this is so funny. I, I knew you were asking this. Um, Clint just wants me to plug his point that the Republicans killed a measure that would have provided $40 billion to the IRS in order to beef up enforcement, which should have probably had a $140 billion per year in new revenue, you know, by being able to like audit people more and, and let them not let them get away with not paying the taxes, which is a crime. And the uh, and so Clint asked Eric, should people pay their taxes? The answer is yes. Anyway, I got into a mode of telling people what to think. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it up. Um, Clint has a bunch more questions, uh, and I'll answer a few of them pretty quickly. So um, what needs to happen, politically, socially, or otherwise, to expel Chinese influence from the U.S. entertainment industry? So he cites, for example, John Cena giving a very, very cringy apology to the people of China, so in Mandarin, for a statement where he said, Taiwan is a country. And... Um, so how do we get Chinese influence out of the U.S. entertainment industry? Well, the answer is you don't, right? They're a, cons they're a consumer, right? Like this is kind of what, like people want consumers to have power over what corporations do, like until those consumers aren't like us, right? China has a lot of consumers now. And so, you know, if someone, I don't know, if like a British movie came out and said, I mean, there are enough Americans that hate America that maybe this wouldn't fly, but that said something like, you know, George Washington was a bastard. And he was like, maybe he meant to refer to like, you know, Mark Washington, some other random person. But he said George Washington by mistake. He's like, oh gosh, guys, I'm really sorry. In order to get the US market to watch it, like we wouldn't be that upset. It's also worth noting, nobody thinks Taiwan is a different country, including Taiwan, right? This is like common misconception among Americans. Taiwan does not think of itself as a separate country. China think Taiwan thinks of itself as the government in exile of China. And so like, maybe I'm nitpicking the example here rather than the case that indeed there is like a ton of indeed like a lot of people have apologized or you know change what they've said like i think the new top gun doesn't have the republic of china flag on a jacket anymore it has the prc flag and like uh clint says it's time amount to censorship i don't know like at the end of the day if you want to create like if you're creating something where you want like a western audience to watch it you're going to have to follow certain norms. Now, it's also the case that with China, those norms are like much more stringent and arbitrary because like the nation of China, like guess what? I don't have a lot of Chinese listeners. Like the nation of China is like brainwashed en masse in order to believe what the government tells them. And like maybe that's more the problem is that like you have a nation of 1.3 billion people that are like deeply brainwashed in a way that is quite frightening. And the thing is like, you know, you either just need Hollywood to like give up on making money in China, which I don't think they will. Or you need, like, you need a new niche, right? The thing is, like, it's not censorship because you'll always have, like, all sorts of media that doesn't go after the Chinese market, but, like, blockbusters will. So, like, blockbusters won't do things that insult China, but it's not censorship because, like, nobody's going to stop, you know, smaller media from being able to say what they want. And this is just, I think, the market in action. And it's not even, like, capitalism's fault. It's just, like, the consumer saying what they want and the consumer is now global and just unfortunately, a big part of the consumer population uh, is brainwashed communists, or at least not even really communists, just brainwashed Sino-fascists. Clint has a few more questions that I'm actually just going to save for our next Q&A because I only promised a few. Clint sent me a ton of very good ones, which I want to get to more of, but we'll do it in the next Q&A. So I hope everyone enjoyed. Please send me feedback about how this went. Um, some of the stuff was very off the cuff. Some of it was a bit of a rant. Uh, some of it was probably more informed than other stuff. But I had a lot of fun. Thank you for the great questions. 
And to patrons who haven't sent me questions yet, if, if you're of the whatever dollar or more variety, send uh, questions, because um, I want to do this again. So until then, uh, don't even let me do the thingy for you. Pause, reconsider, and have a great week. Thanks, everyone. This is Eric signing off. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.